Welcome to the latest episode of A Just Transition, brought to you by RBS International. My name's Tim Phillips, and welcome once more to my co-host, Yulia Magnutina, Associate Director, Climate and ESG at RBS International. Hello, Tim. Yulia, great to see you again. I realise that we are revisiting a topic today, science-based targets. We did that in the last series, but specifically today we're talking about implementing them, aren't we? So who's going to help us do that? Paul Sutcliffe is joining us today. He is the founder and the CEO of Evora, a sustainability consultancy. Welcome to the podcast, Paul. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Looking forward to the discussion. To begin with, tell us a little bit about Evora. So I'm a career sustainability consultant. It used to be called an environmental consultant previously. And 12 years or so ago, along with a couple of colleagues, we got frustrated with the way that sustainability and carbon was being addressed in the particular sector that we worked in, which was real estate, and decided that we wanted to create a professional services firm that truly addressed sustainability in an appropriate and effective way and helped our clients and the industry to understand the risks and the opportunities associated with that. So we've been going for 12 years. We've evolved into a consulting and data platform firm. We support real estate and real assets to address sustainability, develop strategies, monitor and measure progress against those strategies and tracking and reporting performance as well. So that's Avora. So, Yulia, one of the best parts of your job is to explain things to us. By us, I really mean me. Remind me, what are science-based targets, SBTs? Where do they come from? Happy to explain. The acronym SBT stands for science-based targets, as you've rightly mentioned, and they set out a clear path towards decarbonization for companies and financial institutions. Targets are deemed science-based if they follow the latest science and are in line with the Paris Agreement to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius above the pre-industrial levels. SBTs can be independently certified by the science-based targets initiative. It's often referred to the SBTI, so do not mix the two. In essence, SBTI collaboration aims to introduce best practice in business. It offers a range of resources, guidance, and also independent assessments to encourage leaders to take action. When it comes to funds, the SBTs help to incorporate decarbonization ambitions into their business plans and incorporate climate as part of their wider growth strategies. They're also a good way for funds to benchmark themselves against the competition and also to provide evidence of their action. Paul, why are SBTs important? I'd go beyond important and say that they're vital. Consider a world without science-based targets. You'd have organisations progressing, funds, different sectors progressing at different paces without an end goal in sight or with different end goals in sight. So there'd be no clarity of vision. And ultimately what SBTs do, it says it on the tin really, it defines the target. <laughs> this is where we need to get to. And then what we've got to work out is what's required to get there. So that's the juicy bit really. That's the challenge that we have to face. It's a challenge we're going to be dealing with today, isn't it, Yulia? Because one of the reasons we're talking about this today, RBSI has has done a survey about adoption of science-based targets. To do this survey, who did you ask? Why did you do the survey? 
Back in March 2022, we've surveyed 125 key influencers from the alternative investment funds to find out what they really thought about the science-based targets and their progress in adopting them. Since then, the climate finance discussion at COP27, it reaffirmed the urgent need for um, investment in renewable energy. They've quoted up to 6 trillion US dollars a year is needed between now and 2030 if we are to reach the net zero carbon emissions by 2050. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the more conservative estimations that I've seen. (laughs) So the numbers are quite staggering. But the economic context has changed tremendously since our first study. So earlier this year, we went back to the market to investigate how the changing economic climate has affected the SBT's adoption. And the results of our service highlighted three key barriers to adoption of SBT's. And so today we're going to delve deeper into that and discuss what they actually mean. So you only have three key barriers. What's barrier one? Barrier number one, team, is time to implementation. Basically, the time it takes to implement SBTs was cited as the stumbling block by 37% of those surveyed, and it outranked internal technical ability, which was our frontrunner in 2022. Mm-hmm. Paul, why do you think implementation time was voted the top barrier to adoption of SBTs in our survey of alternative investment funds? This is interesting. So if you look at SBTs, they're created over a long time scale. Mm-hmm. So typically an SBT would have a target. Let's get to net zero carbon by 2040, 2050. When I first read this, I thought, hang on a minute, how can that be the case? When we've got such a long time scale to implement an SBT and progress this, why is time defined as a barrier? But then when you think about it, you've got to collect data, understand the data, understand the information, engage with people. Yes, it's absolutely wonderful to hear that one of the barriers that you previously had was expertise, and that's now lower down the list of challenges. It's great for my industry. It's great for Avora as a business that we're hearing this and positive, but it's not just the technical space specialists that you need to develop an SBT. If you think about a business or a fund going through the creation of a science-based target, they have to do the analysis, run the evaluation, get the data, understand that data, then engage with key stakeholders, investors, fund managers, investment professionals who may not be sustainability experts who need to be trained and briefed on that. Then you've got to go about the process of saying, hang on a minute, this costs a bit of money. We've got a budget for it. How much money? Don't know yet. So we've got to run that analysis. There are a number of different facets and issues that I think are the reason for why time has been highlighted has been the one of the primary issues. The vast majority of clients that Avora have have set targets or are in the process of setting targets. So everyone's committed to doing it. It's the challenge of getting something right, robust, appropriate to then be able to communicate to the market is the thing that takes the time. You've got more experience of this than most people, Paul. You've been doing it for a while. So in your experience, what is the most time consuming part of this process? I would love to be able to give you one single answer and say it's X. That's the answer. But it's not just X. There are several (laughs) factors. They can differ by organisation. So it's a combination of factors. But there are some common themes. And I think if you look at the common themes, firstly, what we tend to see is that there was a rush to agree net zero carbon or science-based targets a while back. It was, dare I say, popular. It's the right thing to do, 100% the right thing to do. But organisations were really keen to go out and say, we're going to make a commitment to release a bit of published science-based target. But then... 
I do have a personal feeling that the understanding of what that meant wasn't there in the marketplace at the time. So, okay, I'm hitting a science-based target. How many millions is that going to cost me? What processes do I need to put in place? What steps do we need to go through to create a strategy and then implement a science-based target and potentially even get that accredited by SBTI? First step is making sure that all those involved really understand what a science-based target is, how it will have an implication over the vehicle that the target is being set across, whether it's a business or an investment fund. And then once you've got that in place, you can look at the strategy development of the strategy and start from the beginning and say, how are we going to progress this? What data do we need? Set a robust plan in place to collect that data, understand that data, understand the actions and communicate. So it's understanding and development of plans, Mm -hmm. key points. What are the key risks here? I do see that alternative investment fund managers get bogged down in some of the details sometimes. So the progress of launching SBTs, moving forwards with the SBTs gets slowed down or even stopped completely because data doesn't exist or they can't find available data. So data becomes a challenge. These two factors are interrelated because a fund manager would be worried that if I don't have the data, I'm putting my head above the parapet. I'm saying that I have a science-based target that I'm going to communicate to the investors in the fund that I manage, to the wider world that I'm progressing. And then I have to go back to them in six months' time and say, well, actually, the data and the targets and the commitments that I made are wrong or need to be adjusted rather than wrong. The fear of greenwashing, absolutely, we have to manage the risks associated with greenwashing. But my personal view is that that fear of greenwashing is to an extent stymieing the industry. It's slowing us down. It's slowing progression down. So looking at this from the other end, Paul, are there tips that you would give about how to speed things up, how to optimise this time taken? It comes back to addressing those challenges and hitting them head on. So making sure that the parties involved in setting the science-based targets truly understand what that means. And it's a significant long-term commitment to an investment vehicle to agree a science-based target. We're not doing it just for the cost. If set correctly, it will manage risk and potentially even optimise performance and help position vehicles in a more attractive way to investors in future. So there are serious and significant positive steps that having an SPT can deliver. And so I would say that ensuring that those involved understand what's involved, how the process runs, again, developing a clear plan and almost going through a what we call in Avora a pre-mortem. So going through the process of what are the potential roadblocks that we'd see along the journey that we need to address. If data doesn't come in, if we don't get the information that we need, if we have a, a stumbling block with, for example, an investee company, if I'm dealing in a, a PE firm, how do we address those issues? And planning thoroughly. So planning and understanding. That pre-mortem technique is so useful across so many tasks like this. Thank you very much, Paul. So, Yulia, what else is the survey telling us? The second key finding for us, team was the fact that pressure from regulators ranked as the strongest driver of SBT adoption. Regulatory pressure is further compounded by a lack of clarity around the legal and regulatory implications of setting SBTs. So the proportion of those surveyed who say that this are unclear to them has more than doubled from 14% in March 2022 to 32% in our latest survey. Are our listeners right to be worried about these kind of risks, Paul? They're right to understand that the risks exist mm-hmm. and to plan appropriately for those risks. I have sympathy. So, Yulia, you highlighted the lack of clarity over what the regulations state. Avora do a lot of work on SFDR, which is the European Union's Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulations, where investment funds articulate their own sustainability goals to investors whilst raising money and then report on progress going forwards. One of the challenges is that these regulations are not 
industry specific. They're a one size fits all approach and are often unclear. And they provide structures that need to be followed, but don't necessarily say how a fund should do it, which is the right way, but it creates lots of different interpretations. Even though across Europe, there are regulations, so they should be uniformly applied and implemented. But I do see regional variation in adoption and an understanding of the regulations, which causes an element of concern and confusion. And then I think that there is the worry, I touched on this earlier, where if I launch a fund and that fund makes a commitment to a science-based target and I, Mr. Fund Manager, go through the process of doing that, possibly get my data wrong and I don't achieve my goals, then that has a significant implication because I've not achieved what I set out to do in the fund investment memorandum from the outset. So there's a worry of failure, which is slowing us. I think the other big concern, again, is the threat of being accused of greenwashing. And that's firms saying, oh, look, we're going to have a science-based target. And when their detail is reviewed, uncovered, maybe evaluated, through regulators, that the regulators disagree with the interpretation of the particular fund manager's approach. So these concerns are slowing us down. And I'm an advocate of moving forward within the framework of a regulation and working with regulation. At Avora, we often regularly encourage our clients to take the leap, so to speak, to make that commitment to work through the challenges rather than being afraid of the challenges from the outset. The sustainability regulations are two or three years old at best. And so we need to understand that it's not just the regulated entities that are new to this and finding their feet, but also the regulators themselves. As long as records are taken and due process is taken in terms of setting strategy and approach, then we're far better moving forward than worrying about process and regulation and being hauled over the coals for greenwashing. Definitely something I hear a lot about from our clients as well, both on the difference and the interpretation depending on the region they operate in and the reputational concerns and specifically greenwashing that they are worried about. How can our listeners overcome those main risks that you've just talked about? I'm going to be fairly cheeky here and uh, and say that a point of really good advisor would be the would be the, would be the, would be the best best. Uh, no, seriously, understanding the regulations, having clarity on the regulations, whether that's internally or using advisors, doesn't matter. But having an understanding of what the regulations are seeking to achieve, that's important. Sustainability compliance can't be the ownership of one person. It's a collective obligation of the the fund manager to ensure that these risks are understood. So the ownership of that understanding needs to be communicated and articulated. And then once you know what you've got to do, you plan for it. It comes down to understanding, training, competence, and then working through a plan. Comes back to that pre-mortem point, Tim. Mm. Where could things be challenged? What are the risks that we're taking? Are we comfortable with those risks? If we're setting science-based targets and we haven't quite got 100% of the data that we need, are we using proxy data to fill those gaps? Where does that data come from? Could that be challenged? And having comfort that if we are challenged, we've got an answer and we can articulate why we've got to that stage. And is working through that process the best tip that you have for anyone that's listening to this and wants to get going now? I would always start an engagement, whether it's to create a science-based target or to support the creation of a SFDR commitment or an EU taxonomy engagement with an awareness session. Mm -hmm. Every single time we start the exercise by making sure that the key participants are in a room together or online and understand very clearly why have you contacted Avora in the first place, but also what steps you need to take to meet these requirements and what the challenges are. So, Julia, we promised three barriers. Actually, promising really isn't quite the right way to describe it, is it? We committed to discuss three barriers. So what's number three? 
Number three is measurement team. Three out of 10 alternative investment funds that we surveyed in early 2023 identified difficulty in measuring performance Gosh. as a barrier to SBT adoption. So what do we mean by measurement in this context? What are we actually trying to measure? A good example of measurement or a key performance indicator, KPI in this case, would be energy or water consumption. And these measures are of a particular concern for um, real estate funds because energy and water consumption typically fall under the control of tenants, not investors. And those operators and investors often struggle to understand building performance and therefore naturally struggle to set relevant SBTs. There are some proxy measures that we know exist, but they're often insufficient given how complex the sector actually is. Why is this stuff so difficult to measure, Paul? Well, first of all, it's a massive frustration for me that we're still talking mm. about measurements 12 years into Avora's existence and probably 25 years into my career <laughs> as a sustainability professional. It was a challenge in the late 90s, and it's still a challenge now. And it does frustrate me that we're still talking about this issue. But Yulia hit the nail on the head here. They're specifically in the sectors I work in, if you look at real estate, a fund will have a number of assets. And within those assets, more often than not, the responsibility for paying the bills, for engaging with water supply contracts or energy supplies, which obviously then has an impact on carbon, would be the tenant. And if there's no formal structure to require that tenant to supply the data to you as a fund manager, then you're reliant on the goodwill of the tenant to supply that information. So there are steps that can be taken to address this, but it's still a challenge. Because if you look into the wider PE space, it's the same principle, but with investee companies. So you're reliant on investee companies who are in control of the energy data and therefore the carbon footprint to supply that information to you. If an investment fund has made an investment in a business without putting into the investment agreement a structure to say that we need to see monthly, quarterly, whatever it is, energy and carbon data to understand the impact. If that's not been done from the outset, then it becomes really challenging to get that if the organisation that's been invested in isn't used to collecting that information. What expertise do fund managers need to solve these problems? Do they have those expertise? I think the expertise is growing and the understanding of the challenges is getting there. There are multiple solutions to sorting the data problem out. The first and obvious one is if you're setting up a new fund, whether it's tenancy agreements or investment agreements with invested companies, then get clauses within those contracts to say you've got to share your data with us. And that sharing of data needs to be at an appropriate timescale. So getting the structure up and running is key. Then if a fund manager is operating an existing fund that doesn't have the ability to introduce new clauses into contracts or tenancy agreements, etc., then look at, well, okay, what are the challenges? Where are my gaps? Understand the gaps in data and develop plans to address those gaps. There are technologies out there that can help collect the data. Often, there is a requirement to obtain letters of authority from the various parties to say, yes, you can use technology to collect this information. But it does remove the human challenge of an investee company or a, a tenant having to physically go and read a meter. There are technologies out there that can automatically read meters. So look at what technology solutions can be used. And then finally, if that information is not available, we want to move forwards. Are proxies available that can enable the understanding, at least at a base level, of the carbon footprint that the businesses have. In summary, get agreements in place that enable you to collect data and look at technology to support in the collection of that data and engage, communicate and look at what alternative methods have we got to build an understanding of carbon emissions if the data is not available. 
Paul, you've touched upon this already, but how can fund managers rely on companies that they invest in to deliver good data? Well, it comes back down to the, have you got an agreement with those companies to supply that data or not? As a fund manager, you can't demand that a company supplies it if it's not in an agreement whether it's tenancy agreements in the world I work in for real estate or whether it's investee agreements or contracts with invested companies to make sure that they're willing to supply that data. And the structure of those agreements needs to be sensibly set as well. So they are increasing. We see them a lot. So it's not uncommon. But a simple once per year may not be enough because it's a lagging indicator. You're getting data through. It's almost too late. So thinking about how can we get this information? How can we get the MI that will enable us to make informed decisions about progression more frequently than once per year? And also thinking about if the entity is going to supply the data, how are we going to use it? So that comes back down to the earlier questions of let's get this strategy right. Let's understand how we're driving sustainability forward and how we're progressing the SPT program effectively. Paul, over a quarter of a century have been driven slightly bonkers by the problems of measurement. What have you learned along the way that is the best way to keep on top of this? There's no silver bullet, this will fix it. Technology has a massive part to play in getting better data, more accurate data, more quickly. But it doesn't necessarily mean that that data is perfect. So you know, an example is there are technologies out there that can extract data from invoicing portals or billing portals. Imagine a scenario, you're taking data from an energy bill and an energy bill for a business overrates the energy or overcharges initially. And then there's a negative correction number the following month. When you extract that data using these technologies, it'll show that trend, which will show a negative level of consumption. So there needs to be an understanding of how that works and a correction and adjustment. And I think AI's got a part to play in this of understanding the ramifications, but AI needs to be developed and programmed and understood to support this. Yet again, though, we still need permission, formal engagement where possible, having programs using technology, understanding the limitations of the technology and a multi-strand data strategy program as part of a wider net zero carbon or science-based targets program would be really effective. Let's hope that these challenges ease up a little bit in the next 25 years of your career, Paul. (laughs) Thank you, Tim. 25 years more. (laughs) That's what I take from this. Brilliant. Paul, our final question of the day to you. What does a just transition mean to you? I must admit, I was tipped off a little by the title of the podcast Mm -hmm. that this question (laughs) might come up. I think it's a vitally important question. A just transition to a low-carbon economy means that we're going to be spending money to reduce carbon emissions. It takes investment, but that investment will deliver benefits. And the benefits have to fairly benefit society as a whole, not just the few. I'll give you an example. My world, real estate, let's boil it down to a single asset. You develop a residential block of flats. That residential block of flats is maybe the most sustainable block of flats ever from an energy perspective, from a carbon perspective, carbon neutral, loads of renewable energy on site, really well insulated, really great. If it's too expensive to live there for the vast majority of the population, is it truly sustainable? For buildings to be sustainable, it's not just the E component, but the S component. And they have to be energy efficient, carbon efficient, environmentally sustainable, but also usable, accessed by people for the right purposes, adaptable, able to deal with the changing climate that we have. So managing to address physical climate risk as well and enabling the people that they were designed to be used for to use them effectively whether that's an office block or a a retail park or a mixed-use purpose building, truly sustainable buildings, people enjoy being in them. Truly sustainable businesses, people enjoy working for those businesses. The E component is one facet of that. 
Paul, really pleased that you've been with us today. I hope that you've been taking notes. If you haven't, you're going to have to listen to it again because there's so much there. Thank you very much for listening, everyone. Please let us know what you think. If you want to drop us a like, tell us what you would like to cover in our episodes. You're very welcome to do so. And we will take notice of what you tell us. Subscribe. Make sure that you get every new episode when it comes out as well. Thank you all for listening and see you again in our next episode. Goodbye for now.